Now, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 21. So, this is the 38th, for those of you keeping track, and final, Lord willing, sermon on this book. It's taken us about a year to get through the book of Judges. And um, if you're just visiting with us this morning, I'm sorry to do this to you, but uh, you can go back and find out what happens in the earlier chapters. Um, I hope the children have learned uh, the 12 different judges that we've studied and a little bit about them. And then also we've been in these last five chapters of the book where we see sort of what happens if God just lets us do it our own way. And uh, it's not a pretty picture. And we come to this final chapter, uh, the aftermath of the civil war that we read about last week a civil war that led to the almost complete annihilation of the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, there's only 600 uh, men of Benjamin that are, have survived at this point, and uh, they're uh, holed up uh, at a rock uh, that they're, uh, they're hiding in. And now this is the response of the rest of the tribes with this situation. So let's give attention now to God's word. Judges chapter 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mitzpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as a wife. Then the people came to the house of God and remained there before God till evening. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly and said, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel, that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? So it was on the next morning that the people rose early and built an altar there, and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. The children of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up with the assembly to the Lord? For they had made a great oath concerning anyone who had not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the children of Israel grieved for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives for those who remain, seeing we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them our daughters as wives? And they said, What one is there from the tribes of Israel who did not come up to Mizpah to the Lord? And in fact, one had come. no one had come from the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were counted, indeed, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent out there 12,000 of their most valiant men and commanded them, saying, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, including the women and children. And this is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every male and every woman who has known a man intimately. So they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately, and they brought them to the camp of Shiloh, at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin who were at the rock of Rimon and announced peace to them. So Benjamin came back at that time and they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead, and yet they had not found enough for them. And the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who remain, since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed? 
And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe may not be destroyed from Israel. However, we cannot give them wives from our daughters for the children of Israel have sworn an oath saying, cursed be the one who gives a wife to Benjamin. Then they said, in fact, there is a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Lebanon. Therefore, they instructed the children of Benjamin saying, go lie in wait in the vineyards and watch. And just when the daughters of Shiloh uh, come out to perform their dances, then come out of the vineyards and every man catch a wife for himself from the daughters of Shiloh. Then go to the land of Benjamin. Then it shall be when their fathers or their brothers come to us to complain that we will say to them, be kind to them for our sakes, because we did not take a wife for any of them in the war. For it is not as though you have given the women to them at this time, making yourselves guilty of your oath. And the children of Benjamin did so. They took enough wives for their number from those who danced, whom they caught. Then they went and returned to their inheritance, and they rebuilt the cities and dwelt in them. So the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. They went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And there will end the reading of God's word. May God bless us as we conclude this series through the book of Judges today. Well, children, when I was growing up, I was one of four boys. My mom wasn't a big fan of snack foods, so we didn't often have these kind of treats uh, around the house. And so if you did happen to come by something like a Twinkie, that was a pretty big deal. And so uh, I remember quite vividly having a Twinkie at one time and then unfortunately dropping the Twinkie into a pile of dog hair. We had a lovely collie dog that shed like crazy. So there was my Twinkie covered in dog hair. So thinking I can't let a good Twinkie go to waste I went to the sink and turned on the faucet and tried to wash the dog hair off the Twinkie. Now you might think that a soggy Twinkie with dog hair on it would not be very appetizing, but I was not going to let the Twinkie go to waste. I think it's just purely a coincidence that I spent that whole night getting sick and that was probably the last Twinkie that I ever ate. And sadly, this is the way it often goes. Uh, we try to fix something that went wrong and our fix doesn't work very well. In fact, sometimes it makes things worse. Uh, maybe your mom gets you a new pair of dress pants and you know you're supposed to be careful with those, but you go out and running around with your siblings and you get a grass stain. And you think, uh, oh, my mom's gonna kill me if she sees this grass stain. I know what I'll do, I'll try to clean this myself. So you go and find one of the spray bleaches or something and you put it on there and end up ruining the whole pair of pants. This is, this is the way it goes. And of course, you know, these are kind of humorous examples, but we see this happening in, in far more serious issues. Uh, there was a, a school of thought some years ago that the incarceration rate uh, was too high. And so uh, many cities decided, well, the, the way to solve that is to stop 
arresting people and stop prosecuting crimes. And uh, now many of our cities are becoming unlivable uh, because they're so dangerous because of this philosophy where the solution, this is solutions causing greater problems. And that's exactly what we have before us in the passage today. Uh, Because uh, we ended last week with uh, seeing this terrible act of vengeance that the people began uh, well enough trying to execute justice uh, over a great crime that had been done. But then it just devolved into the wanton slaughter of uh, nearly the entire tribe of Benjamin. And what you're seeing today is what happens when we try to fix things on our own. And it's a great reminder to us that all of our efforts at self-reformation are ultimately futile, apart from the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the main point that we want to see as we look at this passage, that you and I need to praise God, that his mercy to us in Jesus is greater than all of our futile efforts to fix ourselves, which often end up causing more problems. And children, if you want to draw a picture, draw a picture of maybe these, um, these wives that they have for the, the men of Benjamin and uh, why that those brides are probably not terribly happy uh, with the situation that they're in. Now, the first thing I want you to notice in this, there's an outline in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along, is that the proper response to your sins is grief. It's grief. It's not blame shifting. We see this in the first three verses. Really, the whole chapter is full of expressions of grief about what has happened to Benjamin. So in verse 2, in verse 6, and in verse 15, the people of Israel express grief and sorrow over this terrible situation that's happened to Benjamin. In verse 2, it says, The people came to the house of God and remained there before God. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. They wept bitterly about what has happened. Now, unfortunately, their sorrow is not over their role in the situation. In fact, if you look at verse 3, it's almost as if they blame God for what's happened. Oh, Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? The reason is very simple, because you slaughtered them. You killed them. You can't go to God and say, how could you let this happen, God, when you are the ones who did it? And yet that's exactly what we see them doing here. Later on in the passage, in verse 15, they do something similar. The people grieve for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. And so they view this as God's work. They do not see their own role in it. But verse 1 tells us, in fact, this was their plan all along. The men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah, saying, none of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as a wife. So clearly they had this in mind, that they were going to kill all the women of Benjamin, and then they would prevent Benjamin from rebuilding itself in in case anyone survived by withholding their own daughters to be wives for the men of Benjamin. And so this shows that this had been a part of their plan all along. And children, you can see what the, the idea would be. You, you and your siblings are playing football in the living room when your mom's told you not to do that, and you break a vase. And then you go to your mom and you say, we're so sorry that the vase is broken, that the vase got broken, using the passive voice. Because, of course, 
you had nothing to do with it. It's just something that happened, right? Your mom's not going to take that very well. What she wants you to say is, I'm sorry, that was a dumb thing to do. We disobeyed you and look what's happened. And actually recognizing that you are the cause of the problem. And, uh, and this is what we do not see amongst the people of Israel. Uh, commentator Barry Webb, these uh, cross-references and quotations are also in the bulletin. He said things often look very different after a battle than they do in the midst of it. Um, the week before last, IU was in a close game, which they lost. I know that's exactly what happened yesterday, but I'm talking about the one the week before. Um, and near the end of the game, one of the players on the other team from Illinois was ejected for spitting on one of the IU players. Now, I'm sure in the locker room, uh, after you've been thrown off the field, uh, you're, you're thinking that was not a good thing to do. And on national TV, my name is being mentioned as the guy who spit on the opponent. In the heat of battle, oftentimes things look very different. And you and I, in the heat of battle, under the crush of whatever it is we're dealing with, may make decisions that dishonor God, that are unwise, that are sinful. The right response is to acknowledge that and to seek forgiveness, not to push the blame off to somebody else. We sang from Psalm 51 earlier in the service, and earlier in that Psalm, David writes, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. He doesn't say that, you know, things happened and he was just like some observer or bystander. He recognizes he's the sinner and he sinned against God. And John writes about it this way in 1 John 1, verses 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And there's a lot of times when we sin and then we try to shift the blame onto other people. Note, we lost our, you know, I lost my temper. It wasn't somebody else making me mad. I was impatient. It wasn't the circumstances that forced this to happen. And uh, this reminds us that we need to uh, own up to and grieve over our sins. Well, secondly, we see here that all too often you're tempted to fix your sins by committing new ones. And we see this in verses 4 to 12. So verse 4 sounds good. They gather together and they, uh, they're giving offerings. And it seems like, well, maybe they're seeking God's will. But as we read down here, we realize, no, they're just, again, trying to get God's approval for what they want to do, what they've already planned to do. And in verse 5, we learn about another vow that they had made. In addition to this one about not giving their daughters, it says, who among the tribes did not come up for the assembly? For they had made a great oath concerning anyone who had not come up to the Lord at Mizpah. So remember, when this great evil had occurred and the, the woman had been murdered in Gibeah, they called everybody together to come and bring judgment. And then that's when things spiraled out of control. Benjamin decided to fight instead of to admit that they had been wrong. So apparently here, uh, the Isra Israelites had said, well, if somebody doesn't come up and do their part, uh, we want to know about that, and we're going to treat them like co-conspirators. And so uh, what's happening here, of course, is in an effort to keep the very unwise vow about their daughters, 
they're now going to keep this other rash vow about killing anyone who did not show up. So verses six to nine tell us, they do a little analysis, they find that no one came up uh, from Jabesh Gilead. So that's on the other side of the Jordan River, that's quite a distance and uh, they don't find any representatives. So they decide we need to punish them. So you could conceive of, of, of how you could punish the, they didn't send their soldiers, so maybe there's a proper punishment for this. It doesn't seem like what they actually do is a just punishment because what they actually do is they send 12,000 soldiers to this unsuspecting village and they tell them, go and strike the inhabitants with the edge of the sword, including the women and the children. You are to kill everyone in the city except young women, um, young maidens. And that, this is how we will get wives to solve the Benjamin problem, the fact that this tribe has almost been wiped out and we won't give them our own daughters to be their brides. Um, again, it's troubling, right? The author just describes this. There's no commentary on it, um, but to quote one of the, the, uh, the commentators, this is an absolute travesty. That, that if you're questioning, whoa, is this the right thing to do? No, this is not the right thing to do at all. This is an example of trying to fix the first mistake you made uh, by doing another mistake uh, just as egregious and just as wrong. Uh, quoting from Ralph Davis here, he says, we marvel at an Israel as urgent to preserve Benjamin now as they were rabid to destroy him resorting to injustice to maintain their own consistency. That is their consistency to this vow that they've taken. Matthew Henry says similarly that those that had spared the Canaanites in many places who were devoted to destruction by divine command could not find it in their hearts to spare their brethren that were devoted by their own curse. Men are commonly more zealous to support their own authority than God's. So again, this, these are people who didn't do what God told them to do with regard to the pagans all around them, but here they are super zealous to totally wipe out one of their own cities in Jabesh Gilead. My mom uh, spends quite a bit of time and has for years uh, volunteering at the crisis pregnancy center in the town where she lived. And one of my daughters just was finding that out recently and said, oh, you know, you, you talk to the women. And my mom says, no, I do not talk to the women because I don't have the patience and compassion that's needed for that job. I do book work behind the scenes and do record keeping for them. Because you're faced so often, you are faced with these kind of situations where one sin has precipitated a certain situation, an unwanted pregnancy, and the solution is going to be to commit another sin. As if that's going to solve the problem. And realize people in these crisis situations, it, it is difficult, but it doesn't. It just compounds the situation. And this is constantly the kind of thing that we're dealing with, where we are tempted to try to fix the first problem that we've created by uh, compromising and by doing something uh, that is against God's word. And really, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And then what's their response? They, they make fig leaves and they hide from God. And, and, and here we are still doing the same thing where we're, we're not turning to God. We're trying to figure out our own solution to the problem. 
which just puts us farther away from God. And we need to acknowledge all too often when we try to fix our sins, we do that by committing new ones. Thirdly, we see here that the proper response to your sins is humble repentance. It's not doubling down, it's humble repentance. So in in our story here, uh, at one level, it seems like this scheme to destroy Jabesh Gilead and to, to save out the young women has worked. They're able to get 400 uh, young virgins who had not known a man intimately, and they bring them to the camp. And in verse 13, then they send word to these 600 uh, surviving Benjamites who are in hiding, and they, they, they send words of peace to them. Come back. We have wives for you. We're going to try to fix the situation. Of course, the problem is they only have 400 wives, and they need 600 wives. And you can see them again rehearsing this in verses 16 to 18. Uh, Well, we're really sorry we're short on the number of wives, but, you know, we've taken this oath and our hands are really tied. We can't give you any of our own daughters. And so what are we going to do? And then we have some uh, sheer genius in verse 19 recommending that we can go to the annual feast in Shiloh where the daughters of Shiloh come out. This is where the tabernacle is as a part of this celebration and commentators are divided. Is this some kind of a reenactment of Miriam's celebration at the crossing uh, of the um, Red Sea? Or is this part of the, somehow part of the Feast of Tabernacles? It's not entirely clear, but what is clear is it's a religious celebration and it's tied to the tabernacle. And so as these women come out, They tell the remaining 200 Benjamite men who don't have wives, here's where you're going to get your wives. You hide when they come out, you chase them, you catch them. I mean, it's using words here like you would use for trapping animals almost. You catch them, everyone catch a wife, and then uh, this will be problem solved. Um, Matthew Henry, in speaking of this, says, here was a very preposterous way of matchmaking when both the mutual affection of the young people and the consent of the parents must be presumed to come after, the case was extraordinary and may be by no means drawn into a precedent. So children, if you're wondering what he's saying there, do not try this at home. This is, this is not meant to be something that we imitate. It's, it's, it's preposterous, as he said, it's, it's horrendous, but this is more of the same. Right? This is not reckoning with your sin and pouring out your heart before God and saying, Lord, help us know what to do in this situation. This is grasping at whatever thing you can come up with to try to fix the situation. And look in verse 22 at the impressive moral logic uh, that they use to justify this. They say, look, when their fathers or their brothers, they come to us and complain, we'll say to them, well, be kind to them for our sakes. It's, we don't have wives for them. It's not like you gave them. They were, they were captured. They were taken. You didn't cooperate, so you'll be fine with regard to your oath. Obviously, the one saying that uh, didn't live in Shiloh and didn't have their daughters involved in this situation. I don't know if you've seen the, uh, the old musical or the, uh, the, uh, there was a movie made about it, My Fair Lady. Right, where Eliza Doolittle is uh, brought off the street into Professor Higgins' 
house. So he's going to teach her how to be a lady. And, um, and so her father finds out about it, Alfred P. Doolittle. He, he comes to the house, and he's not worried about uh, her safety. He's not worried about the appearance of the thing that she's been taken into this older man's house. Not worried about anything ethical or moral. He only is concerned whether he can get paid something for this man taking his daughter. And, and Henry Higgins says, you are a truly unique moral philosopher, right? You, you, you have this very unique way. And of course, this is what we see here. One of the commentators says they've created a world in which right is wrong and wrong is right, and they've landed the nation in complete moral bankruptcy. And, and rather than doubling down on their bad efforts to solve this, they should have turned to the Lord in genuine repentance. Quoting now from Kyle and Delich, they said, when the elders of the nation came to a better state of mind, they ought to have acknowledged their rashness openly and freed themselves from, and the nation from an oath that had been taken in such sinful haste. The, the oath was sinful and they should have, turn, they should have repented of it and turned away from it. And this, in fact, is the solution for the sin that you're dealing with in your own life, that we need to acknowledge it. We need to turn to the Lord. We need to repent. Uh, if we've harmed people, we need to make them whole to the extent that we can. We need to seek restoration. This is what the Bible says the right way to deal with sin is. We read from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 earlier in the service. Again, quoting there from verse 10. Paul said, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And, and that's what we're reading about. This is the sorrow of the world producing death and destruction. And God calls us to turn away from our pride and humbly turn to him. And by his grace, then, as we read about in 2 Corinthians, he enables his people to live faithfully seeking him. So the proper response to your sins is humble repentance. It's not just more of the same. And fourthly, we see here that without Jesus, all your efforts to fix your sinful decisions are in the end futile. So in verse 23, we're told that the children of Benjamin, they did so. They stole these women. They kidnapped them and uh, got wives for themselves and then they returned to their inheritance and they rebuilt those cities that had been burned down and they restored the tribe of Benjamin. And likewise, then we're told in verse 24 that the children of Israel, all the rest of them, uh, they left and they went back to their own tribes, to their own inheritance that God had given, had given them. And it's verse 25, that's just the closest we get to any commentary on this that helps you understand what's actually going on where the author reminds us, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This whole fiasco, uh, as one commentator calls it, is an indictment on the people of God. This is the moral insanity that results when we do it our own way. When we take uh, the Frank Sinatra song, you know, I did it my way. And we make that our moral philosophy this is what happens. And, and think about these last three chapters. You had a one woman who was abused and murdered, 
And in response to that now, we've had a civil war that has killed uh, over 60,000 soldiers and uh, many innocent bystanders. Today, we read about an entire town wiped out and now 600 women who have been abducted against their will and forced to marry these remaining Benjamites. And that's the solution to the rape and murder of the one woman at the beginning of this story. And you, you see how when we are left to do it our way, what seems best to us, this isn't what inevitably follows. God's people here being presented as depraved. And commentators have noticed is a really interesting, when you look at the book of Joshua, you have basically the people coming in and trying to make Canaan uh, into Israel. That is what they're doing. And now in the book of Judges, it seems as if Israel is being remade into Canaan. Uh, but it's not that anyone is doing this to them. They're, they're doing it to themselves. That, that's the part that's so hard to get your mind around, is that they are doing it to themselves. And yet one commentator says the, the book ends on a miracle. And the miracle is that despite the best efforts of the people, there still is an Israel. And all 12 tribes are still there. This isn't a validation of what they've done. This is a nod to God's sovereign grace and mercy that he has preserved them despite their best efforts to destroy themselves. He has preserved them and he has done what they could not do. And this is a good reminder to you and to me. Uh, when we think about how we solve all, all our problems, our, our problems are ultimately spiritual problems. And we cannot fix those problems ourselves. Only God can. And God works over and above our own sin to accomplish his purposes and to preserve us. Just as these people were the greatest threat to their own survival, you are the greatest threat to your own spiritual well-being. Even in lands where Christians are being persecuted, no one can make you sin. At the end of the day, we are the ones who choose to sin or not to sin. I'm not saying it's not difficult, that there aren't sometimes enormous consequences, but these are the decisions that we make. And we need to be able to humbly say, I can't fix what's wrong with me. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can fix what's wrong with me. Only he can rescue me, take my sin away, and heal me. Though this is showing you under no uncertain terms, can you fix yourself? With Jesus, without Jesus, all your efforts are futile. But finally, we see here that we are to praise God that his mercy to you in Jesus is so much greater than your futile efforts at self-reformation. Um, this book ends very appropriately by reminding us in this final verse that our ultimate hope, it's not in human judges who can do incredible feats of, of bravery. 
That's what we read about, 12 judges. Some of them were uh, more godly than others. Some of them quite, quite complicated people. And yet, at the end of the day, every one of them died and was not able to keep the people faithful uh, after he died. Your, own hope, your hope can't be in your own efforts at do-it-yourself religion. Uh, we've seen the effects of that, the, the moral confusion that results. Your, your hope can't be in your own ability to reform yourself or to fix your mistakes. Um, your hope can't be in a human king from the line of Benjamin. Uh, interesting, we said last time that there's, there's really a subtext in this last section here. Benjamin's not where you're looking uh, for your leadership. That's where the first human king in their nation came from. That's where Saul came from. No, your only hope is in a perfectly righteous king who comes from heaven in the line of David and who lives forever. A king who can subdue his people and can rule his people and can keep them in the way that they should go. And, and that is the, the wonderful news of this book. I know, I know it, it ends on kind of a downer, but the point really is that although you and I cannot fix ourselves, God is committed to keeping you in his king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God will never let his people go. And you can say, no matter how badly I mess this up and I try to fix it and mess it up worse, Jesus Christ will not let you go if you're one of his children. That's the hope that comes from this passage and from the entire book of Judges because Jesus is that righteous king who died in place of his people, paid for their sins, and rose from the dead to give us eternal life. And he's the judge who's going to be coming to bring about the perfection of the world. So I put Psalm 96, verses 12 to 13. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming. He's coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Here's the true judge, the true king who's coming at the end of the world. And that passage in Psalm 96 talks about the entire universe is celebrating that reality. And he promises specifically that when he comes, he will make all of his people perfect. 1 John 3, verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And of course, the Bible ends with the people of God being described as this glorious bride, prepared perfectly for the Savior coming down from heaven. That's our hope. We have a king, a king who subdues his people and then rules over them and keeps them in the way that they should go so that this kind of thing we're reading about in Judges doesn't have to be the fate of, of, of the people seeking to serve God. Jesus Christ is the one who delivers us. And that is the message of this book. On Thursday night, when um, Joe Moore's oxygen levels just kept going down and down and down, uh, they made the decision. They had to put him on a ventilator. And very traumatic uh, for the family and, and, and obviously 
uh, it was touch and go um, because a lot of times when you go on the ventilator, it's not clear you're going to be able to come off the ventilator. And God in his grace and mercy uh, has revived and restored Joe. Uh, but a few of us got to go in and see him uh, as they were hooking him up and had him hooked up. And I'm, it's, a, it's, a, it's a picture of uh, a, a situation that you cannot solve on your own. There's no way Joe was going to be able to fix himself. None whatsoever. Someone had to come in from the outside and provide the things that his body couldn't do. And that is, that is how all of us are spiritually. We're absolutely helpless to fix ourselves. We don't have the answer to sin. And even the most upstanding moral people among us who always show up to their, op, uh, uh, their appointments on time, who never break the speed limit, you cannot fix your sin problem. Only the Lord Jesus Christ can. And this book, while it's parts of it are painful to read, that's the point. That's the point. You and I can't fix ourselves, but God can. And he can through his righteous, eternal king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave up everything to come and to save his people and promises to be with us and to guide us throughout eternity. Let's pray and we'll give him thanks for his grace. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this trip through this book that we've taken, that you've guided us on. We're thankful that we've seen heroic actions, we've seen terrible tragedies, we've seen your people uh, reduced to moral confusion. And Lord, throughout all of it, you have reminded us that this was not the end of the story, that the people's only hope was a righteous king and that, that theme has come back again and again. And how we thank you, Lord, that we are living in the time where we can see so much more clearly who that righteous king is and what he's done to save us from our sins. And we do pray you would forgive us for those times when we think uh, we can fix ourselves without turning to you. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow him and how we thank you that he's promised to make his people perfect and to be with us throughout eternity. We pray if any among us don't yet know this king, that you would help us to come to love and to trust Jesus Christ, our savior. And we pray even in this coming week, you would give us a greater desire to please him and to seek his face. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. And now let's sing our praise to the Lord from Psalm 96. So we quoted that earlier, speaking about the coming judge of all the world. This is our Lord and Savior. He's the king. And all the universe celebrates his coming. So 96, Selection B, let's stand to sing and then remain standing for the benediction. <clears throat> 